the life of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the Meccan period, by Imam Anwar al-Awlaqi. A'udhu billahi min ash-shaytan rajim Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim Alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam salima kathira We covered the story of the Islam of Bumad and Amr bin Absa We move on to the story of Abu Dhar radiyallahu anhu I'm going to mention to you the Imam Ahmad version Abu Dhar radiyallahu anhu stated that me, my brother, and my mother left our land of Ghifar because our people used to be disrespectful of the Ashur al-Huram. Al-Ashur al-Huram are four months in which the Arabs used to consider sacred and this would give them a break from warfare. So they would not allow killing war during those four months. And it was a firm tradition among them that you do not break the sanctity of these four months. The people of Ghafar were different. These were professional raiders of caravans. They didn't care about Ashar al-Haram and all of this stuff. They were Bedouins who would raid caravans, steal, kill, corrupt, and they didn't follow any rules or customs. These were the people of Ghafar. And they had a bad reputation in Arabia. I mean, people in Arabia knew Ghafar. These people don't abide by any rules. Violent. Abu Dhar radiallahu anhu, before Islam, he disagreed with this style of life. So he, his brother and mother decided to leave Ghafar, just go out. So they went and they visited an uncle of theirs. He used to be a member of a different tribe. And they stayed with him. And Abu Dhar says he was very generous and hospitable to us. Very kind. But his relatives were becoming jealous. How come he's treating us so well? So what they did, they went up to the uncle of Abu Dhar and they told him, uh, when you are absent, Anna Unais, Abu Dhar's brother, he goes and visits your wife. And he's interested in her. The uncle, quite naively, he went to Abu Dhar and Unais and mentioned to them what he heard. He said, people are saying that Unais is interested in my wife. Abu Dhar was very angry and upset. This was false. He was very angry and he said, all of the good that you have done to us, you have cancelled it. All of your hospitality, your kindness is gone. After this accusation of yours and immediately packed up and left Abu Dhar said my uncle was quite sorry and regretful for what he's done and he wrapped himself in a cloth and was crying but Abu Dhar said we were so angry and we just left and now they settled in a place close to Mecca Abu Dhar says that my brother Unais went to do some business in Mecca and he met a man who claims to be a prophet he met Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa so Anais came back and he said, I found a man who is preaching a new religion, worshipping Allah alone. Abu Dhar said, and at that time, I have already worshipped Allah for three years and revoked all of the worshipping of idols. I renounced it. SubhanAllah, you see these people, their fitrah guides them and tells them that this is wrong, this is false. Abu Dhar says, I've been praying to Allah for three years. So, 
Abu Dhar was asked, how were you praying to Allah? He said, I would pray to whichever direction Allah would point me to, and I would pray in whatever way Allah would guide me to, and I would pray at night until I fall asleep, and only the sun would wake me up in the morning. So he would pray. He doesn't know how to pray, but he would pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for three years. Abu Dhar asked his brother Unais, he said, what does he teach? So Unais mentioned some of the teachings of Islam that he learned from Rasulullah And then he asked him, what are the people saying about him? Unais said they're claiming that he's a sorcerer, a magician, a liar, and he went down the list. Abu Dhar said, ma ashfayta ghalili. You haven't satisfied my hunger. I want to go and investigate the matter myself. What the people say might not necessarily be right. The media of Mecca, the CNN of the day, or the ABC, or whatever you call it, had all of these labels that they would brand Rasulullah with, but Abu Dhar did not have trust in what the people are saying. He would have to go and meet Rasulullah and hear it from the messenger himself. And that is what a Muslim is required to do. Tabayyanu. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, when you receive some information, verify it. Tabayyanu. And that's where our scholars learned the science of hadith. They would verify. It's not just enough to hear a hadith narrated from someone. The scholars used to say, هَاتُوا رِجَالَكُمْ أَوْ سَمُّوا لَنَا رِجَالَكُمْ Whenever they would hear a hadith, they would say, mention the names of your men. Where did you hear this from? Tell us the names. We want to know who you got this information from. We just don't follow any hearsay. Abu Dhar, he said, I went into Mecca and I asked the first man I saw in front of me, I told him, can you please guide me towards Muhammad He said that man immediately started calling the men of Quraysh and they started pelting me with stones, rocks, whatever they could get their hands on until I fell unconscious. He said, by the time I woke up, I was like Nusub Ahmar. And Nusub, the people of Quraysh, they used to have these stones idols which they would slaughter and sacrifice their animals over. So they would be soaked with blood. That is the description Abu Dhar gave himself. Like a red pole. Soaked with blood from head to toe. He said, so I went to the well of Zamzam, I drank water and I washed the blood off my body. And then I went next to a Kaaba. And the narration of Imam Ahmad says that he stayed there for 30 days. Not knowing where to meet Rasulullah And Abu Dhar said, I did not have any food for the entire period, except for drinking the water of Zamzam. Now, I think physicians can tell us that a person can survive by drinking water for quite a while. So maybe that's not such a surprise, but the surprising thing is what comes next. Abu Dhar said, and I started picking up weight until I was getting folds on my stomach. You know, for them, the Bedouins, they would have flat tummies. <laughs> they were very uh, fit. Abu Dhar said, I was gaining weight, and now the flesh on my stomach was folding. You know when you sit down and the flesh on the stomach folds? Abu Dhar states that he then saw two women making tawaf, and they would touch Isaf and Na'ila on every turn. What's the story of Isaf and Na'ila? Isaf and Na'ila are a man and a woman who were in love and they couldn't get married and they had an appointment, a date to meet next to Al-Kaaba 
and they intended to fornicate next to the house of Allah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala turned them into stones on the spot. After the passage of some time, the mushrikeen of Quraysh started worshipping them. Started worshipping these two stones, the Saf and Nail. To show you how when you open the floodgate for shaitan, you can't close it. He just throws you in dungeons of darkness. You can never get out of it. It's a spiral. If you get in, you never come out. Darkness over darkness. One veil after another. Now, the story of idol worshipping actually started as erecting statues after righteous men died. Shaitan came to the people of Noah then told them after the righteous men have passed away, why don't you erect statues of these righteous men so that they would remind you about Allah? He came to teach them good. He said they would remind you about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So they did that. And then after a few generations, he started telling them, worship them. That's how the idol worshipping grew. So here you have Isaf and Naila being worshipped. And these two women would make tawaf and they would touch Isaf and Naila on every turn. Now Abu Dhar, he despised idol worshipping. So he threw out the comment. He said, why don't you make one of them have intercourse with the other? Either the woman did not understand what he said, or they didn't believe what they heard. They continued. When Abu Dhar saw that his words did not deter them, he threw out an even cooder comment. And I'm not going to mention it. Now the women were sure of what they heard. They immediately just started running and screaming. Wailing. Down the streets of Mecca. And who did they run into? Muhammad sallallahu and Abu Bakr. Muhammad sallallahu and Abu Bakr are seeing these two women running in the streets screaming. What's wrong with you? They said... That heretic over there, Rasulullah said, what's the matter with him? They said, he spoke a word that fills the mouth. In other words, something that is unspeakable. Very bad words. Rasulullah and Abu Bakr, they went to meet this man, Abu Dhar, and they started the conversation. Rasulullah asked Abu Dhar, where are you from? Min ayna rajul? He said, I am from Ghifar. Rasulullah placed his hand on his forehead. Abu Dhar said, Rasulullah was surprised and amazed to see somebody from Ghifar coming to Mecca in search of the truth. From Ghifar, these people who raid caravans, the ones who do not follow any rules or any customs, and he is searching for the truth in Mecca and the people of Mecca, the ones who are considered to be the religious authority of Arabia, are rejecting my message. Abu Dhar said, I felt that he might have disliked that I mentioned that I'm from Ghifar. So I extended my hand to pull his hand from his forehead. Abu Dhar said, Abu Bakr slammed my hand and told me, put your hand down. And then the conversation continued and Abu Dhar ended up embracing Islam. Rasulullah told Abu Dhar, Uqtum Iman, keep your Iman secret. Abu Dhar, he went out the next day, rather than keeping his Iman secret, he went in front of the people of Quraysh and said, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashhadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah. He doesn't care about the consequences. He said, they gathered around me and they beat me up so bad 
I was going to die. Until Al-Abbas bin Abdul Muttalib came in and said, Do you know where this man is from? Just one question. He is from Ghifa. Abu Dhar said, immediately they just ran away. All what you would see is them fleeing, running away from him. But he did the same thing the next day. And he did the same thing the third day. And every day the same thing would happen. They would come and beat him up until Al-Abbas comes and tells this new group of people who are hitting him that the man is from Ghifa. Al-Abbas said, and you know, if this man gets killed by you, that none of your trade will make it safely to Syria. They're going to take revenge of you. Rasulullah then told Abu Dhar, go back to your people and convey the message to them. And when you hear that I prevailed, come to me. How long did Abu Dhar stay with Rasulullah Quite a short time. How much did he learn from him? Probably not a lot. A few verses, a few ahadith here and there, and that was it. Abu Dhar, he went back to his people, Ghifar. And he started giving them da'wah. Slowly and slowly, people were accepting Islam. Among the people of Ghifar. He said, by the time Rasulullah ﷺ made hijrah, almost half of my tribe were Muslim. The whole tribe of Ghifar. He said, and then we decided to go and visit Rasulullah ﷺ, and the rest of the tribe have said, when Rasulullah ﷺ arrives, and when we go and meet him, we will become Muslim. So now the whole tribe is Muslim. All of them are Muslim. The other half just said, we're going to wait. It's a matter of time, but then we will become Muslim, and they did. So one day, when Rasulullah ﷺ was in Medina, they see in the horizon this dust cloud. Sign of an army approaching. Large group of people. So some of the Sahaba rushed to their weapons, thinking that maybe an army is approaching us. But Rasulullah ﷺ said, Kun Abu Dhar. Be Abu Dhar. And the prophecy of Rasulullah ﷺ was true. It was Abu Dhar and all of his tribe of Ghifar coming to pledge their allegiance to Rasulullah ﷺ. The entire tribe. Now there was rivalry between two tribes, Ghifar and Aslam. When Aslam heard that Ghifar became Muslim and they went and pledged allegiance to Rasulullah ﷺ, they immediately went to Rasulullah ﷺ and said, we also want to become Muslim. Two tribes. Rasulullah ﷺ said, Ghifar, ghafarullahu laha wa Aslam salamahullah. Ghifar, may Allah forgive them. And Aslam, may Allah give them peace. All of it started by the work of one man. And how much did this man know? Was he a scholar at the time? No. He just knew a few ayat. Later on, Abu Dhar came to learn a lot. But at that stage, he just spent a few days with Rasulullah and that was it. All of Ghifar became Muslim. The last people in the desert that you would expect to accept Islam, they did become Muslim. What can we learn from the story of Abu Dhar? Number one, again, the same lesson is coming up. The ones who search for guidance, Allah will give it to them. Abu Dhar investigated the matter and Allah showed him the light. Showed him the truth. Number two, Rasulullah says, Convey even one verse from me. Whatever you have, convey it, share it, teach it. Don't keep it to yourself. Number three, courage. Abu Dhar is an example of a person who has courage. He wasn't intimidated by the fact that he's a foreigner in Mecca. He stood and he said, I'm a Muslim. And he was proud. And he paid for it dearly. And then he went to his people. 
And he preached the message to them. So this shows you the courage of the personality of Abu Dhar, which is shown again and again and again by the Sahaba of Rasulullah and this reveals to us the inherent qualities that they had. And this is also one of the reasons why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose them to be the bearers of the message. Because they had simplicity, and they had courage, and they had honesty, and they had commitment to a cause. When they believe in something, they commit their lives to it. Number four, verifying the truth. Just because the people say that he's a sorcerer, a liar, a magician, doesn't mean anything. You have to go to the source and verify the information yourself. Allah has given you a mind. Allah has given you intelligence. Use it. Don't just follow what the people are saying. Rasulullah says that don't be an imma'ah. And when he was asked what is the meaning of imma'ah, he said whenever the people say yes, you say yes, and whenever they say no, you say no. Don't just follow. Number five. لا تحقرن من المعروف شيئاً ولو أن تلقى أخاك بوجه حسن أو طلق. Rasulullah says in this hadith, do not belittle any good deed. Even if it is as small as smiling in the face of your brother. Don't belittle anything. Whatever good there is, don't consider it to be insignificant. Because everything good is significant. And maybe that small thing will make a difference on the day of judgment for you. And it will be the criteria between hellfire and paradise. Maybe one small deed that you would do, which you don't pay any attention to, would tilt the scale to your side, for your favor. And how do we deduct this lesson from the story of Abu Dhar? Abu Dhar radiallahu anhu, he learned very little, and all what he wanted did was propagate the message, and maybe he never expected that this small effort of his would end up causing the whole tribe of Ghifar and the whole tribe of Aslam to become Muslim. Maybe he only felt that he could convince a few group of people, maybe a few of his relatives, but for this work to end up bearing the fruits of two major tribes becoming Muslim, maybe Abu Dhar never thought about that. But you throw the seed, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make it grow. And I'll mention to you some contemporary examples about how sometimes you would do something very small, and you never pay attention to it, but it will make a big difference. And there's a hadith, by the way, that says that a person might speak a word that would please Allah, and they don't pay attention to it, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will raise them up levels because of that. And a person might speak a word that will anger Allah, and because of that they will be thrown in hellfire. It's a matter of a word, here or there. There is a brother uh, from Canada. He said that he started having interest in learning religion at a very early age, around the age of nine. He started studying religion. That's quite early. He said, but he was turned away from Islam because of a lesson that he was taught in school about Islam. He was shown some images that turned him away from Islam. And then he said he was going through some problems in his family. His father left and his mother was on drugs. So he said he completely forgot about this issue of religion, even though he had some early interest in it. 
He said, and then he became a drug user, and then he was promoted to being a drug dealer, and he went to jail at the age of 14, so he had a turbulent life. He said later on, towards my later teenage years, after I came out of jail, he said, I, I used to go to this park in Canada, it's in the center of the city, and that's where the drug addicts would usually congregate. And we would all smoke and use our drugs and you'd find needles all over and that's where we would all come together and get high. He said, so I went there and I was sitting next to this guy who looked for him and I was smoking my dope and I saw something interesting. He said, the way that this guy next to me used to wrap his marijuana or hashish or whatever it was, I'm not very familiar with their specific terms, he said the way he used to wrap it was different. So that caught my eye. I asked him, I see that the way you wrap your hashish or hash is different. Where are you from? He said, I'm from Morocco. He said, so you must be a Muslim. He said, yes, I'm a Muslim. He said, can you tell me something about Islam? Now he's remembering his early years of studying about religion. He said, tell me about Islam. He said, so this Moroccan guy was going through the tenets of Islam and we were all smoking and we were very high and, I mean, he's, he's speaking <laughs> and I'm just receiving all of that information and absorbing it. I mean, we're both high. He's speaking very well and I'm understanding very well. He said, for two hours, continuously, we were talking about Islam. He said, until we ran out of drugs, we had nothing left. He said, and then we continued the conversation for another two hours. Four hours in total. And he said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent another person to sit next to us. Subhanallah, it was Qadr of Allah. An Algerian person. Who wasn't on drugs or anything. He was just there. He happened to be there. He said, he sent us to us to correct whatever mistakes that that person would make. You know, people have different understanding of Islam, so they would correct each other. And whenever one of them would mention something wrong, the other person would correct the false information. He said, we continued the conversation for four hours. After that, I became Muslim. He said, now neither did the Algerian or Moroccan person know that I became Muslim. Because I left and then became Muslim on my own. And I stopped using drugs. And I actually met him and he was doing da'wah at the time. When he was telling us his story, there was a group of us. So one of the brothers who was sitting and hearing the story said a bad word about that Moroccan person because of using drugs. This Canadian Muslim brother, his faith turned red. And he became very upset and angry. And he said, don't speak about him. Because I became Muslim through him. And every single thing that I do, my salah, my siyah, my zakah, my zikr, every single thing that I do, a copy of it will be deposited in his account. Now, only Allah knows where that person is. He might still be in the park using drugs. He might be lost. And he never knows that in his account, is salah and siyam and zakah, they're all deposited and he knows no idea about it. He'll come on the day of judgment and see all of this and not know where it came from. I was in those parks using drugs, where did all of these good deeds come from? 
It all happened because of a few words that he said to a drug addict like himself. Now maybe he never knew that this person would become Muslim. Maybe he never intended it. He just was conversing, talking. But he threw something good out there. And these are the fruits of it. So never belittle anything. Maybe there's a small thing that you would do here and there. And this would be the cause of your salvation on the day of judgment. While the big things that you're doing, the big projects, the things that you're spending a lot of time on, wouldn't bear such a harvest. And this is something that is in the hands of Allah, so you never know. Therefore, you should do whatever good you can. And leave it out there. Just throw the seeds, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make them grow. But do not belittle anything. Even if it is as much as smiling in the face of your brother. We'll move on to the hijrah to Abyssinia, the migrations. Actually, one more story that I would mention to you to illustrate the same point further. And this story was told to me by the person himself. Both stories were narrated to me by the person, persons themselves. This was an African-American who was a student at Berkeley University, University of Berkeley, University of California at Berkeley. And uh, he heard about Islam, but he didn't really know much about it. African-Americans tend to know about Islam because they would have relatives who are Muslim or they would have a mosque next to them. I mean, there's a, a very uh, old tradition of Islam among African-Americans in America. So you would usually find that they would have one member of their family or one friend who embraced Islam or is a Muslim. So in general, they are more familiar than anybody else in America about Islam. So he knew about Islam, but he didn't know the details about it. He wasn't very interested in it. He said one day, in the beginning of the semester, I was walking through campus, and a member of the Muslim Students Association was handing out copies of Quran, translations of Quran. So I picked up a copy, and on my way home, on the bus, had nothing to do, so I opened up this book that was given to me as a gift. I had no idea what it is. And I opened up the first page, which is Al-Fatiha. I thought that this is an introduction to the book, and who reads introductions? So I flipped the page. And I went straight to the body of the book. Now the first thing that he would uh, see next is Surah Al-Baqarah. He said, I began reading. Alif Lam Mim. There is no doubt in this book. No doubt in this book. He said, I was shocked by that statement. Usually when an author would write a book, they would start by apologizing for their mistakes. Apologizing for their shortcomings. And here you have an author who is so confident about himself, he's stating that there is no doubt in my book. And that's the first thing that you see in front of your eyes. So I was quite amazed and I wanted to know who is the author of this book. I flipped the front cover, didn't see any name, looked at the back, didn't see any name. I didn't know who wrote this book. And I kept on reading. And then eventually I realized that this wasn't written by man. This comes straight from Allah Azza The power and the confidence that faces you as soon as you open the book, he said, made my heart shake. And he said that was the reason why I became Muslim. Just that verse. There is no doubt in this book. 
Now again, that person who was giving out Qur'ans might be thinking, well, nobody's going to read this. I'm just wasting my time. I'll just do it because they asked me to. Because of that Qur'an, this brother became Muslim, and he's an imam, and he's very active in da'wah, and many people became Muslim through him. And that was a product of a very small effort. Alright, we move on to Al-Hijrat wal Habasha. There are two migrations that happened to Al-Habasha. The first one happened in the fifth year of Ba'tha, following Revelation. And it was composed of a small group, twelve men and four women. The second Hijrah migration was a larger group and it was composed of 83 men and 18 or 19 women. And this was more of a sporadic migration, maybe they didn't go in one, one group. Now, how come there are two migrations to Al-Habasha? When the first group went to Al-Habasha, they heard a rumor that the people of Quraysh have become Muslim. Rasulullah received the ayat of Surah Al-Najd. And he recited those ayat. And those ayat were so powerful that it had so much effect on the people of Quraysh when they heard the last ayah, which is an ayah of sujood, and Rasulullah and the Muslims made sujood, the kuffar made sujood with them. They were so in tune with the ayat, they made sujood with the Muslims. And this was the origin of that false rumor that the people of Quraysh became Muslim. So you had a group of the ones who made hijrah come back to Mecca to find out it was a false rumor, so now we had another hijrah, which was a larger group. Rasulullah when he saw the pain and suffering that his companions are going through, he said, why don't you go to Al-Habasha? Because therein is a king who does not oppress anyone. لا يظلم أحد. The king is just and he does not oppress anyone. So they went to Al-Habasha, and the first to leave were Uthman ibn Affan and his wife, the daughter of Rasulullah There is a narration that says that Uthman ibn Affan and his wife are the first to make hijrah in the sake of Allah after Lut. They went to Al-Habasha, and the second group came in. So they left Mecca. Does that mean that the people of Quraysh would leave them alone? No. Even though the Muslims in Abyssinia were no threat to Mecca politically, they were no threat to the economical interests of Mecca, nevertheless the people of Quraysh did not want to leave the Muslims alone. In other words, even if we are left alone, we're not going to leave you alone. We're going to stay after you until we destroy your religion. So the people of Quraysh assembled a delegation to go and meet with al-Najashi to ask him to turn over the Muslims. And who did they choose for this mission? Amr ibn al-As and Abdullah ibn Rabi'ah in one narration and Amr ibn Rabi'ah in another narration. But the central figure here is Amr ibn al-As. Amr ibn al-As was a diplomat, was a very intelligent man of Quraysh. He had wide connections. He was a friend of the kings of the world at that time. 
So he was the right person to choose. And he was a mastermind in plotting and planning. And you can see that he was very good in conspiracies against the Muslims. That was the personality of Amr ibn As before Islam. Amr ibn As, he went to Najashi, and the plan was that he's going to go and meet the top officials first. And he's going to give every one of them gifts, or in other words, bribes. And he's going to present to them his case and say that in your land are some fools who ran away from Mecca. We want you to turn them over. So he wants to work it out with all of the top officials before he meets with Al-Najashi. So when he talks to Al-Najashi and he consults his officials, they will all give him a unified opinion that you should hand them over. So he went to every one of them, had a meeting with every one of them and gave them gifts. And then he went to meet Al-Najashi. And he has told the officials that I prefer that you hand us over these people without having them meet Al-Najashi. I don't want them to meet Al-Najashi because their words are very effective. They feared Qur'an. So he worked out the plan and he went to meet Al-Najashi. And uh, he told Al-Najashi that there are some fools among us who came to your land. We know them. And they left our religion. They didn't follow yours. And he went on and on and on. In the end he said, we want you to hand them over to us. Now all of the officials were already there and they said, yes, hand them over. And Najashi said, no, I will not hand over people who sought refuge in my land until I hear their side of the story. See the justice that the Najashi had. And the choice of Rasulullah to have the Sahaba go to the right place. So Najashi called the Muslims to come and meet him. The Muslims received the message. They were told that Amr ibn As has met with the Najashi and the Najashi wants to meet you. So they had a shura, advice, and Ja'far ibn Abi Talib was to be their spokesman, the only spokesman, and that they're going to speak the truth. They went in to meet al-Najashi, and Najashi asked them, what religion are you following? You left the religion of your people, you didn't join my religion, you didn't join any of the religions of the world, uh, who are you? There's a hadith narrated by Umm Salama, radiallahu anha. It narrates the speech that Ja'far ibn Abi Talib gave in front of al-Najashi. And I want to read the exact words of Ja'far because there's a lot to learn from this presentation. Ja'far said, and Ja'far is the cousin of Rasulullah sallallahu He's the brother of Ali ibn Abi Talib. He said, O king, we were a people of polytheism. We worshipped idols, ate the meat of animals that had died, offended rules of hospitality and permitted things forbidden, as in the shedding of one another's blood and so on. We completely ignored matters of right and wrong, and so God sent to us a prophet. So notice the opening of the speech is talking about their background. I want you to follow the speech and, and look at how Ja'far ibn Abi Talib arranged the speech. Keep in mind that he is talking to somebody who has no background whatsoever about Islam, doesn't know anything about it. He's speaking to someone who is Christian, and he's speaking to a king. 
So he gave him background information of who we used to be. This was our situation. We were people of shirk who used to worship idols. We used to eat the meat of dead animals. We offended rules of hospitality and permitted things forbidden. We used to shed each other's blood. We completely ignored matters of right and wrong. So he gave him an impression that we used to live in a chaotic stage. And then he said, And so God sent to us a prophet from among ourselves, whose honesty and trustworthiness we knew well. With this statement, he has established credibility in the prophet. So now Najashi knows that Muhammad وسلم, is from among the people. His people know him very well. They know his trustworthiness and they know his truth. He summoned us to pray to God alone and without associate. Told us to respect rights of kinship, to honor rights of hospitality, to pray to God the Almighty and Glorious, to fast for him and to worship none other than him. Here he gave him issues of Tawheed, oneness of Allah, and also the morals that Islam teaches. He gave him a little bit of both. And he said, and he, and so he called us to God to affirm his oneness, to worship him, and to tear down all the other stones and idols we and our forefathers had worshipped apart from him. He ordered us to be truthful in our speech, to keep our, to our trust, to respect kinship ties and hospitality rights, and to abandon things forbidden and the shedding of blood. He forbade us to do anything immoral, to tell lies, to misuse the funds of orphans, or to make false accusations against women of virtue. He ordered us to worship God and to associate no other God with Him. He told us to pray, to give alms, and to fast. And then he enumerated for him all aspects of Islam. Can anyone have any disagreement with anything that Jaffa said? Truth, trustworthiness, so it's important when you're speaking to somebody who doesn't know anything about Islam to illuminate to them the aspects of Islam, the good teachings of Islam. Sometimes in our da'wah we assume that people know that Islam teaches good. Many don't. And Ja'far took that into consideration and he went through the morals and the character building that Islam promotes. In addition to talking about the ibadat, he spoke about salah, Zakah and Siyam, and he also spoke about Tawheed, which is very important to present. The worship of Allah alone, and tearing down the stones and idols. You can also notice that it was very brief and to the point. He didn't go on and on and on in details. He didn't turn it into an argument or a debate. Because remember, he's dealing with a king. You can't argue with such a person if you want to bring them closer to Islam. So he made it a very short and brief presentation, but it's complete, it's comprehensive. There's nothing missing. And then he said, and so we believed in him and trusted him. Following him in the instructions he brought from God, we worshipped God alone without partner and associating no one with him. We forbade what he has forbidden and considered permissible what he allowed us. But our people aggressed against us and harmed us, seeking to draw us out of our faith, to return us to the worship of idols instead of God, and to have us again consider permissible the abominations we had previously allowed. When they treated us with violence and persecution, 
besieged us and prevented us from performing our religion, we left for your country and chose you above others. We desired your hospitality and hoped we would not be harmed in your domain, O king. Wonderful ending. Let's look at the statements before that. He said our people aggressed against us, harmed us. They tried to force us to give up our faith. They besieged us. They persecuted us. Don't you think that this will, this will strike a chord with a Najashi who is coming from a Christian background that stresses the issue of suffering and sacrifice? So these words must have brought the Najashi closer and would throw in his heart feelings of mercy towards these people and a feeling of shared, of something that we have common between us. This suffering sounds like the suffering Isa went through. Sounds similar to what the prophets went through. Because this is a man who was steeped in his religion. And then in the end, Jafar ibn Abi Talib said, the reason why we came here is because we were looking forward to your hospitality. And we chose you over all other kings of the world. And Najashi, the Negus, replied, Negus is the translation of Najashi, he said, did you bring anything with you from what he brought? And Najashi now wants to hear Qur'an. Ja'far ibn Abi Talib recited some ayat of Qur'an. Which ayat did he choose? There are many ayat that he could choose. Which ayat did he choose? Surah Maryam. Look at the choice of ayat. He recited to him verses from Surah Maryam. Umm Salama says that, I swear, the Negus wept so hard, his beard was soaked. And all his bishops cried so hard, they wet their Bibles. So it must have been an emotional presentation and recitation. To cause a Najashi, the king, and his bishops to cry. And Najashi wetted his beard and the bishops wetted their Bibles, which were laying in front of them. One brother, he was working as a taxi driver in, in the U.S. He said, I was asked to drive a priest from Coronado Island to San Diego. Coronado Island is an island outside of San Diego in the U.S., which was quite a long distance within the city. And it was very late at night. So we had a conversation and he asked me, what are you? I said, I'm a Muslim. Who are you? He said, I'm a Catholic priest. And I'm here for a convention. So this brother said, do you know that our Quran has spoken about Jesus? Would you like me to recite to you some verses in Quran about Jesus? He said, yes, go ahead. So the brother said, I went on reciting verses from Surah Maryam and translating them. And I kept on going, on and on and on, and the priest was silent, sitting in the back. It was late at night, and he was sitting in the back. He said, and then suddenly the priest told me to stop, this is my destination. The brother said, when I looked at him, I saw tears running down his cheeks. That is how strongly influenced he was by the verses of Surah Maryam. He said, but the good thing after that, he gave me a hundred dollar tip. So... People who love Isa, who love Jesus, when they hear the story of Jesus in Quran, it's, it's quite emotional. So it caused the Najashi to weep. 
صلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى اله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا Please proceed to the next CD